Good evening and welcome back to another look. We are going to be in our uh, booklet once more as we uh, look together at uh, chapter two of Esther. And we are going to primarily be thinking about um, verse seven and the name uh, Hadasha, uh, or as we know her, in the English language most well, uh, the name Esther, uh, and the Jewish name she was given. So we'll um, start there uh, tonight. <clears throat> but I did want to note that I had a lot of questions over the last week about uh, the, the interpretation, we might say, in one way, or the, the comments on Sunday morning about uh, the king wanting Vashti to come out in just her crown. And... On the one hand, I can certainly uh, appreciate and understand where some of those uh, questions come from, since a straight reading of the English language would um, not say that it has to be in just her crown. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's some uh, wondering, where does that come from? How do we get there? What is the, is Pastor Josh just sort of making this up because, you know, he's got this weird imagination uh, and so one of the, there's a couple things to, to note. Um, the first is that um, almost every commentator on the book of Esther recognizes that there is this uh, highly sexualized undertone within the Persian court. So in chapter one, we meet this uh, big party, this group of advisors who, uh, when the king is scorned by his wife, uh, take that personally. And so there's this, uh, the author sets it up as foolishness, but it's it's this ridiculous sense that uh, this highly sexualized court is just normal. And so the king should get what he wants. And there's this whole bureaucratic program, this whole government program that gets, sets, uh, gets set up in chapter two. And and throughout the, the book of Esther, if you as commentators note, if you allow yourself to sort of read playfully, there are a lot of spots where uh, there's a sense of innuendo, where the author is clearly saying one thing, but if you uh, sort of allow the playfulness and the satire of the story to come out, uh, there's certainly uh, another sense uh, in the text. And so, in some ways, um, the challenge of interpreters is what to do with that, translators, what to do with that. And, and so it's worth noting that one of the rules of translation that often gets used is that the more difficult reading is typically the correct one. In other words, when you have a, a book and you're going to translate it into uh, a new language or you're going to have a new interpretation or a new translation for uh, people to read. There are, of course, lots of sources. There's Greek sources, there's Hebrew sources, and in the case of a book like Esther, there are um, dozens of different scraps of parchment and papyrus, the different translations. In fact, uh, the book of Esther has, uh, certain versions of Esther have whole other chapters that are part of it. And so 
Interpreters make decisions, translators make decisions about how to communicate the sense of the text and also balance that with what is uh, literal in the text. And so one of the things that uh, people often say when they're looking for a Bible is I want one that matches most closely. I want one that's literal. Well, that's not always, uh, that's not always the best translation. If I uh, say that so-and-so won the whole kit and caboodle, uh, you probably know what that means. But if you're a, an exchange student or English isn't your first language and you're not sure of all the uh, nuances and strange phrases we have, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Literally, to win the kit and caboodle makes no sense at all. And so when you get to a passage like Esther chapter 1, where the king asks Vashti to come out in her crown, uh, what's the more difficult reading? You know, if Vashti had been asked to come out in her royal robes, wearing her crown, so that the guests could see her in her vast beauty and her royal gala uh, as a way of celebrating her dignity, her honor, and her uh, royalty, chances are she might have said, I'd rather not, but okay. The more difficult reading is for, for us to imagine that if the king asks her to come out completely vulnerable, exposed, and naked, uh, that's more likely to get the kind of response that would say no. So that's not to say that we need wild imaginations or highly sexualized imaginations when we come to Esther, uh, but it does invite us to think about how we approach the Bible and allow the Bible to speak to us through our assumptions or past our assumptions rather than allow our assumptions to define uh, how to understand this. <clears throat> That's just a quick, uh, really not so quick, uh, but uh, a brief explanation of um, some of the questions that I've gotten. So thanks for, for asking those. I appreciate those. And um, now we'll take a little bit of a look at uh, verse 7. So we read there that Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, which uh, he had brought up because she had neither a father or mother. And this young woman was also known as Esther. And so last week we noted that the name Esther is certainly derived from the Persian word star. And Ishtar, if you want to associate it with the Babylonian goddess of love and uh, war and there's certainly parts of Esther where we see that Esther is the goddess of love and that she is the goddess of war. Uh, she wins the beauty contest and at the end of the book she's highly uh, interested in revenge, sort of that love and the war piece. But we don't get the name Hadassah uh, anywhere else, but we do find this Hebrew name and Hadassah is uh, a name that means myrtle. <clears throat> and myrtle was an extremely important tree branch in the life of the Israelites. And it's most closely associated in the Old Testament with what we know as the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. So if you uh, don't remember that feast, uh, God had his people live in booths for a certain number of days, a certain number of weeks to celebrate his provision of them, his deliverance of them. And they would cut branches 
and they would create little shelters for themselves. Many of us did this when we were in school. We'd get green construction paper and we'd cut our branches out and we'd tape them to the sides of our desk and we'd live under our desks that week during, during school. Uh, but in the Old Testament, there's actually specific names of vegetation to use as part of the Feast of Tabernacles. And one of those, the most prominent one used, is myrtle. Uh, the leaves were branched, they were thick, the leaves were small, so you could see through them, but they were very sort of bushy. Um, and these leaves are leathery, stiff, and they have sort of a waxy covering to them. They're what you might imagine a leaf to be in the middle of the wilderness or desert that's trying to grow and uh, survive in brutal conditions. Now, if we imagine that Esther, Myrtle, as is a is a tree, is a branch thrust into a difficult situation, that is the Persian court. She's, after all, an orphan. She's an exile. She is taken by the king. She doesn't want to be taken. She's not going of her own accord. We're not really told, as we noted this morning, how much. She is invested in this, but she is this, uh, she's in the wilderness. And so the question becomes, how does she survive? And in many ways, the story of Esther Hadassah, Myrtle, is how are you going to survive um, in exile in this very difficult situation? And we see that, that how Esther, how Hadassah survives. But the other element of this uh, that we see is that there's uh, Esther, this young girl, is young woman, is living in the midst of two worlds with two identities. She's certainly an Israelite who is an orphan, who is uh, a Jew, uh, and has a very Israelite name. But she also has a very Babylonian Persian name and a Persian identity and she is trying to span or hold on to both of those worlds. And the author introduces to, uh, to us to Esther with both of these names as a way of intentionally challenging us to wonder about how it is that she will bridge those two worlds and invites us as the reader, as the audience, to wonder about how we bridge the different worlds that, of which we are a part. We maybe don't have a name that signals uh, one world and another name that signals another world, but we do find ourselves with multiple identities where we are wrestling with what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a baptized uh, believer, someone who has been chosen to be a child of God, who's been anointed, part of the family of God, but also who is um, at work in a, maybe a secular uh, context, who's asked to do things that are uh, found in gray areas. And so we too, like Hadassah and Esther, have this calling to hold our identities 
and to find uh, out how God is going to call us and use us in the midst of that. And so I'm thankful for a story like Esther because it invites us into that, say, gray space, because that's often overused, but into this unclear space to wonder exactly how God is calling us uh, to be and who he is using us uh, within the context of, of his world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the book of Esther, for its oddities, for the way it invites a different kind of imagination from us. And as we wonder about Hadassah and Esther, this young woman that you used as part of your purpose uh, to save your people, may you also remind us uh, of how you have called each one of us uniquely to be part of your purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.